we're going to keep talking about these promises. Again, we're working towards Advent and looking at a, a different theme. We've talked about pardon and, excuse me, <coughs> and comfort. And today I want to talk about the, the promise of joy. Uh, before we do that, a couple things. Um, first, uh, Dave and Derek, if you could listen with me to Marissa's testimony after church. Um, Marissa, I'm sure it's going to go great. I've heard her testimony already, but just uh, to share before the elders because she'd like to be baptized, praise God. And uh, so we want to do that baptism next week. Uh, she has some friends and family that will be here, which means I need to talk to you about the heating of the water because last time I did a baptism in ice cold water was not good. Uh, so if we could speak about that today afterwards and and just come next week preparing to rejoice. That'll be, it'll be so good uh, to see her follow in obedience. Leah's been meeting with her. <coughs> I don't mean embarrass you, Marissa, but Leah's been meeting with uh, her for about four weeks on Monday evenings and going over what baptism means. So we just go through the process of hearing her testimony, um, and uh, then she'll share her testimony to all of us uh, before she's baptized. I, th- I don't know if that was a surprise to you. I hope Leah told you you had to do that, but we'll talk about that. No problem. Um, I want to thank everybody for the privilege I have of studying God's Word. I want to m- kind of just make two pastoral uh, encouragements to you today. There's things I've experienced this week that I just want to encourage you. It doesn't necessarily have to do with the, our lesson today, but sometimes I don't have a chance to encourage you with a couple of things. Just encourage slash admonish just a couple of things that struck me this week. I'm so thankful that even amongst our small <coughs> church, I'm still able to study the, the Word of God as my job. Because this week, uh, more than other weeks, uh, Studying Psalm 16, it, I, I just on Tuesday, I, I, early in the week, I try to read the passage and just just grasp what the theme of it is. And you know, and when we're going through a a series, it's easier to do that because you know what the next what the next section is going to be. Um, but when you're thinking about a promise and you're trying to, I have I have the list of promises that we're going to cover. I know what's going to come, but but to find a good a good passage to 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 do that with finally landed on Psalm 16 and Tuesday I'm reading through it it just became overwhelmed with emotion um it 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 happens from time to time where you you actually sense that the Holy Spirit is actually speaking to you from his word um like like I've said before I just kind of want to throw the windows open say does anybody else want to enjoy this experience with me and my my admonition to that is sometimes in my study, for sake of time or just maybe maybe more uh, more to the point laziness, it's easier to pull off James Montgomery Boyce on Psalm 16 or or uh, um, Martin Martin Lloyd Jones and and to read their interpretations of Psalm 16 and I and I learn things and I ha- I have to do that we all do that. But to, to know that God this week used his word and spoke to me over his word, that's, that's what he does when we read the Bible. And my, so my pastor application to us is in our day <clears throat> when sermons and podcasts and books and study Bibles have become so, uh, there's such a plethora of them, it becomes easier, easier to take someone else's discoveries and miss out on the joy of our own. It'd be like if you came today and we're having our leftover pizza at lunch and I tie a bib around Judah's neck and start feeding him. You'd be like, this is strange. He's now learned to feed himself. 
And there's a place for all those other things. But it's glorious to just have the Spirit, right? The, the Bible tells us you do not have any need that any man teach you because you have the Spirit that dwells within you and illumines the Word to you. So good. Let, let that just be an encouragement to you. Pray the Psalms. Make your own discoveries. Say with the psalmist in 119.18, open my eyes that I may see, I may see wondrous things from your law. The second happened on Tuesday as well. Everything seemed to happen on Tuesday. I, uh, I was at a pastor's meeting, a uh, pastor's conference with about 150 pastors, and uh, <laughs> the guy got up and said um, that he wanted to thank his parents for taking him to church. And so I'd like to do that too. I'd like to thank my mom and my dad who's in heaven for bringing me to church and and doing so for Sunday school, for the morning service, for the evening service, for Wednesday night, and for all the other things. Um, listen, there is no there is no substitute for that habitual every I mean, someone has said every time the doors are open fellowship that happens. I would encourage you to not make any exception for yourself or your children. Leah, Leah heard something recently, and we confirmed it with ourselves. Like, we we like we would not be coming to we would be coming to church all the time if we weren't the pastor. Like, it's not, there is not a level of commitment for the pastor, and then a level of commitment for all other people who are connected to the church. You know, I would just. I, I think it's vitally important to come to Sunday school, to come to morning and evening worship, to come to the Wednesday night service. And I think that no other habit in my life has contributed to my spiritual growth like that. Psalm 122 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And I think I have that desire, obviously because I know and love Christ, but it was formed in me as a child. And some of you would probably say amen to those same things. So those are just two pastoral applications. I would just say meditate on God's word yourself and maximize any and all opportunities for fellowship, instructions, and worship. Psalm chapter 16. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints that dwell in the land, these are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. I will not, their, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He holds my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. At night, my heart also instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. You have shown to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I love that passage so much I memorized it. It, it is a beautiful and wonderful expression 
of David's confidence and security and joy and delight in God. Father, bless us as we study this passage today and give to your people joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Joy is a quality that marks each believer individually and must and should mark every church locally and universally. It is grounded, this joy is, upon God himself. It is derived from him. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, Philippians 4.4. Romans 15.13 says, May God fill you with all joy. Joy is not only the quality or the sentiment or the feeling of joy, it is also the outward expression of it. In the Old Testament, it frequently was like eruptions of violent and noisy sounds. Shout for joy, all the earth. Sing for all he has done. Give him praise. Say what a great God he is and how awesome his deeds are. It was frequently the sign of festivals and sacrifices. It marked the people of God. Joy marks the people of God. Sad and gloomy Christians do a disservice to the testimony of Christ. To, to come to a service like this overwhelmed in dismay is not an appropriate response for people who have been called out of their sins into the marvelous light of Christ. There is joy. I, I just love when, when we sing songs like this. There is a, heart, a song in my heart I sing, something I never had. I'm sorry, this is recorded. Oh, say, but I'm glad. And the, you look out at the people and they're like, oh, say, but I'm And then you read these things like Dave read to us in Psalm 66 and the the, uh, the imperative is to shout and to sing with joy. I mean, we're in this time of year, college football season, and it's embarrassing and ridiculous how the world can celebrate a silly thing with more joy than, than believers who've had their sins forgiven in Christ indwelling them. Joy in the New Testament is often announced in connection with the proclamation of the gospel. Of course, in Luke chapter 2.10, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. In Matthew 28, verse 8, when the resurrection is announced, they, they went and told the disciples with joy. Joy constantly marks the early church. In fact, in John's gospel, it is Christ himself who communicates this joy in John 15, verse 11, and John 16, 24, by saying, I say these things to you that your joy might be full. Okay, so joy, just kind of beginning before we even get to Psalm 16, joy in itself, is the, it, it must mark every believer, and the reason it must mark every believer is because it is the fruit of a right relationship with God. Galatians 5.22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, etc. Joy is actually a fruit of being rightly related to God. It is a quality and expression that unbelievers cannot have. Not, not biblical joy. Not where they can, they can understand and grasp uh, that joy because this joy is not something that is produced by our own efforts. It is a joy that is produced by the Spirit. So if this joy is not marking your life, if this joy does not characterize your spirit, then you are not walking with the Spirit. 
Because it is the fruit of a right relationship with God. There is something in your relationship with God that is wrong. Just like it would be if you weren't producing, not you producing, if the Spirit wasn't producing in you love or peace or long-suffering or gentleness or goodness or meekness or faith or self-control. All those are fruits of the Spirit. In that same passage, the lusts of the flesh are listed. And in Galatians 5.16, the same letter Paul wrote to these guys he ministered to in the video we watched today, walk in the Spirit and you will not. And this is expressed like categorically, no. It's the same type of Greek language as my Father gives them to me and they will in no ways perish. It's, in, in the Greek, it's written something like uh, my Father gives them to me and, they, and they, I, all that will come to me and they will in no ways, no way, never, no, not ever. Like adding a bunch of uh, negatives to that. And it's the same way if you walk in the Spirit, you will not produce the lust of the flesh. Instead, the Spirit will be producing in you these fruits of the Spirit. Joy must mark God's people. God Himself alone is our joy, not other things, not even the good things that God gives us. Consider, as we have in the past, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, in the parable when the man finds a treasure in a field and he goes all goes and sells all that he has so that he might obtain that field. But there's a little phrase I left out. It says he goes and sells with joy all that he has so that he can obtain that field. Everything else is worth throwing away so that he can have the joy of the treasure of the knowledge of God. This joy, this inexpressible joy, 1 Peter 1.9, comes from the believer's knowledge that they have received the salvation of their souls, even though they have not visually seen Christ yet. There is a joy that cannot even be expressed in words that is the experience of Christians who are rightly related to God. That's the type of joy and delight that God promises to give his people. Now, Psalm 16 does have a prophetic element to the passage, and we will talk about that at the very end. But it also arises from a circumstance in David's life too. And this is where the overwhelming, I don't even know how I'm going to be able to express what I, what I experienced in the study of the passage, because I, I start trying to write down my thought. I just cannot, and I hope the Lord just figures that out as we go along here and that he speaks. This is the actual writings of a man who is making a declaration of his confidence in God. And all the different things that he is saying about what he believes God to be then bring about the blessings that he experiences with them primarily being joy. What David is expressing here is that his knowledge and intimacy with God is what is producing this, this joy in himself. So if we could say it this way, the whole theme of Psalm 16 is that God is going to give us pleasure in this life and forevermore if we have a right relationship with him. That's a beautiful thing. That there is not just hope and joy for this time, 80, 90 years, but forevermore, he talks about it at the very end. He begins 
in verse 1, this, it's called a mictum of David. Just a, as a side note, you may have a little heading at the top of Psalm 16. That isn't part of the Bible. That's something some editor put in. If you have different versions of the Bible, there'll be a different heading at the top. Uh, in the ESV, it happens to say, you will not abandon my soul. That's not part of the Bible. But the word a mictum of David, that sometimes is overlooked. That is part of the Bible. That is the inspired word of God. No one knows what mictum means. Uh, it is, maybe it's some sort of musical term, and, but... Most people said they, don't, they still don't know what it means. It's just an obscure word. But it's a, it's, a, it's a musical psalm of David. That's how it begins. And he starts verse 1 by declaring and asking for God to preserve him or to save him. Now, there's no specific point in David's life that anybody could point to as far as, well, what, is, what event in his life is he talking about? There's, there's plenty of things we could guess maybe that David was experiencing, but there's, there's no way for us to know specifically uh, what it is that he's talking about in this particular passage. It seems to be even more than asking God for protection, but that he's actually assuming preemptively that God will protect him. It almost, almost like we could say, you will preserve me, O God, or preserve me, O God, because you are the one I take refuge in. Now, just like last time, when we talked about the promise of comfort in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we start out by looking at some of the names of God, which provide for us the basis by which we take comfort. And it, again, it is the names and characteristics of God that are brought up that David uses to demonstrate why he can have this confidence. He, there's actually four different names, in a sense, for God in the first two verses. There is God. There is refuge, which is maybe more of an adjective, but also could be a name. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Three different names for God. Preserve me, O God, is the basic word for God, El, which means the mighty one. David is focusing on the strength of God. As he says, God, will you preserve me? Preserve me, O mighty one. Preserve me, El, strong one, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, and you should always note this, capital L-O-R-D, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, D, Yahweh, Jehovah, I say to you, Yahweh, self-existent one. This is the name that he himself revealed to Moses in Exodus 3.14. When, when Moses says, Who's gonna, who am I going to say sent me? He says, I am that I am, Yahweh. You can't even know how to pronounce it because they wouldn't even write it down properly. Preserve me, O mighty one. I say to the self-existent one, you are my Lord. Small O-R-D, capital L, but small O-R-D, the word Adonai. The authoritative one, the master. Here's how he begins his song. Preserve me, strong and mighty one. I say to you, self-existent one, you are my master. It's quite a statement, isn't it? That's, quite a, it's, that's what I mean. It's, it's quite a declaration. Have, have I made that declaration? Mighty one, self-existent one, you, because you are the strong, self-existent one, and in a sense, You can always derive this from the word Yahweh, self-existent one. He must be the only one. How many self-existent ones can there be? Can there be three self-existent ones? Of course not. There is one and only God. And so what David is saying is you are the ultimate strong and mighty El 
and Yahweh as the self-existent, unique revelation to Moses. We remember that, David says. Then I make this declaration that you are my Adonai. You are my master. You are my authority. The believer, the true believer of, of those of us in here today, we understand those aspects of God. Is he the strong and mighty one? Is he the self-existent and the only unique God? Then the third has to be true. You can't say yes to those first declarations, which I'm glad you did, but you can't say yes to those first declarations and then say, I don't really like Adonai part. I don't really like the master authority part. Those who don't know Christ, who live a life apart from God, don't understand that it is this declaration that ultimately brings the joy and pleasure that everybody is seeking. Everybody kind of thinks, everybody kind of thinks this, is, this is like the bondage. Like to, 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 to announce and to declare myself, to say to God, okay, you are my Adonai, you are my master, now the rest of my life is like gone. Just like Paul wrote to those, church, those churches he stopped at. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You know what Paul in a sense is saying? He's saying he is my master. He's my Adonai. They're saying the same thing. And it is not a declaration that brings bondage. It is a declaration that brings freedom. And not only that, but joy. We just talked about it in Youth Wednesday night in Galatians chapter 2 and how the in Acts 15, they wanted to put circumcision as a, as a requirement on the Gentiles to be saved. And Paul was like, absolutely not. We're not going to add that to them. The whole Jerusalem council meets. They make the decision, praise God, to not allow that. And, and they, they say, why would anybody want to still be, have a yoke on them, be connected to that in bondage? Can you imagine laying down in bed at night and wondering if you had done enough good works? <laughs> Think about that. Or I, I looked at something uh, sinful today, or I said something sinful, or I did something sinful. Now I might have lost it. There is no freedom in that. The freedom comes when the believer says, God, mighty one, self-existent, unique, and only God, you are my Adonai. You are my master. We understand those aspects of God. But besides this, even besides that, he's also the refuge. We kind of skipped over that. But he's also the benevolent and good God. Isn't that great what he says? I... I that's why I came out here, I was, I was reading there, and I just had this, like, I don't want mean to say I had this spiritual experience, but sometimes the, I think the Puritans and others talked about like, like the heavens open up and actually God is actually, you know, does God still speak to us through his word? Because that's what I experienced. I come out here, I try to start memorizing this, and I'm thinking, here's what I want my declaration to be too. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And look what he says, I have no good apart from you. What a statement that is. Everything else to me is nothing. You alone are my good. I have no good apart from you. We connect that back to the idea that we started with, as I introduced the subject, that joy is in what is in God himself, not what comes from God. God alone is good, and apart from him, I have nothing that is good. He is the source of all good. This is what James 1.17 says. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the unchanging Father of lights. There is no variableness, neither shadow of turning in Him. And there is no good 
without him. When you make that declaration, you truly have joy. And here's how I can, here's how I can use the Bible to explain that. In, in Luke, and we talked about this, I think, a couple of months ago, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and desires, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. He's trying to expose the sinful heart of this guy. Keep the commandments. Well, yeah, I have no problem. Check, 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 check. All good. And Jesus just kind of indulges him and says, well then, you must sell all that you have, give it away, and then follow me. And he refused to do that. He refused to do that because he wasn't making the same statement as David. I have no good apart from you. And it's interesting because when he came to Jesus, he said, good teacher. Good teacher, what must I say? He was kind of acknowledging the goodness of, no, there's nobody good but God. He didn't grasp that. He thought what was good was the things that he owned. And he refused to give those up for the sake of the one who he acknowledged was good. And now, now catch the punch here. Remember what it says? He went Away, what? Sorrowful. Joyful. Sorrowful. The one who refuses to make this declaration, God, you are my Adonai, and I have no good apart from you. You know, in other words, you are all that I want. He's going to express that again in just a different way in verse 5. You are the good one. I abandon everything else for the sake of you and the joy of you. And you have this other guy who says, I want to hold all onto all these things. That person goes away sorrowful. What will it, what will it, what will it uh, matter if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Went away sorrowful. He's looking for joy in the wrong places. Now, to continue this declaration, I mean, this is a powerful revelation from God's word that he, the confirmations that David is making. He says, you are strong, right? You are the God, the, the mighty one. You are the protector of my life. You are the refuge. You are the giver of life. You are the Lord. In other words, you order my life. You are good. You bless my life. And then, and basically, you are mine. You are my life. Just to say him again, you protect my life. You give me life. You order my life. You bless my life. Really, you are my life. That's the statement he's making in just two verses. Because he says, God, you are mine. You are my Lord. I'm personalizing this. And you bless me with yourself. And I say to myself, Andy, let your life confirm this. Right? Is this the confirmation you would like to make? And if it is, how can you make that confirmation? Because it can't just be saying it. It can't just be saying it. David goes on to show how that happens, verse 3 and 4. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, nor take their names on my lips. This confirmation of all that David has said in verses 1 and 2 has immediate consequences. It has immediate consequences regarding other believers. The consequence is I delight in those people. And there is an immediate consequence regarding other gods, and that is I keep my distance from those. Okay? The consequences are regarding believers. I delight in those. Regarding other gods, I keep my distance. Our loyalty to God, and that's what this declaration is in verse 1 and 2, this declaration of loyalty to God, implies a love for God's people and a desire to be with them. Really, it can be a good litmus test for you to ask yourselves, do you like being with us? Do you like being with other believers? Do you like talking to other believers? Do you like hanging out with other believers? 
You like going to lunch with other believers? You like playing games with other believers? You like praying with other believers? Or do you distance yourself from other believers? You know, kind of looking out over the crowd or, or not interacting with them, lest you might be stained by some of their influences, right? Look at what he says here in verse number three. As for the saints, they are noble. That's what another passage says. They are the noble ones. I, I, all my delight is in those that also follow with you. And we together stack hands on this declaration. And all of us are saying this. And so when I get with those people, these are my people. I went to this conference, and there's a bunch of, there was a bunch of unique individuals there, to say it kindly. And uh, it was just a different association that I'm used to being around. And I was talking to another person afterwards, and we were kind of, we were kind of agreeing with each other on that. And and I, we even said to ourselves, to each other, these aren't our people. These aren't the type of people that we want to connect with. As far as the different, just the different. Uh, themes that were being presented were just kind of off the wall. And David's expression here is, is very similar in that these, these are the people I want to connect with, people who have also agreed that God is our God. And, and then he completely rejects other gods. Now, we have to, I want to be really nuanced in what I say about verse number four. Because I think, I think there can be an expression of something here that could lead us to make a wrong decision, okay? Verse 3 is very clear. As for the saints in the land, I delight in those people. Any, anybody who also agrees, I, those are my people, and I enjoy being with them. Verse 4, though. The sorrows, okay, so now he's going to compare people whose delight is not in God. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. I mean, there is, a, there is a defiant statement of rejection right in the middle in verse 4. I will not. So he's rejecting something, but the important nuance that we have to make is what is being rejected? Because if we misunderstand what David is saying he rejects, it can lead to monasticism or judgmentalism or Pharisaism. In fact, some have said uh, that this means we should have nothing to do with people who pursue false gods. I mean, that, that, that's not what is said. If, if we say that, we are reading into the Scripture, something is not there, and then we look at the example of Christ who interacted with people who pursued false gods with the hopes of winning them. It isn't talking about association with unbelievers. What is it talking about? Let's, let's, quick, let's look at what is being rejected. Okay, I, I, wanna, I want you to see it in the scriptures yourself. He makes the very clear and, and, and true statement that people who run after other gods, they don't have joy, they have sorrow. And their sorrows grow, and we all understand that. They, they have experiences that some of you have faced, and they don't have the deep-seated peace that you have. They have, they have multiplied sorrows, right? That's true. But then he says, their drink offerings of blood I'm not going to pour out, and I'm not going to take their names on my lips. So he's rejecting two things. He's rejecting pouring out blood offerings, and he's reject, rejecting even saying, quote, their names on my lips. I would present that I believe what David is rejecting is the worship of false gods himself. Pouring out the blood offerings, the practice is unclear as to what that is. The idea is, that the pouring out of the blood of the sacrifice that they would make to their false deity 
is a sign of submission to that deity and pleading for deliverance from that God. So they would take some of the blood from the sacrifice and pour it out on the ground and hope that that deity would shine upon it. And some of you may even have like uh, the word libations in your translation. Uh, there is the expression that some believe they even drank that blood in their, fall, in their worship of false deities, that they drank that blood. David said, I will have no part of that sort of practice I am not going to submit to some other deity by pouring out some drink offerings to some other deity because I am loyal to Jehovah. And then he says, I'm not even going to take their names. He means the other God's names up in verse 4. He is not going to use those divine names in any sort of prayer or ritual chants or calling upon the gods like of Baal or Ashtaroth or these other false gods that were presented for protection and deliverance. It's contrasted with the third commandment to honor the name of God and to revere his name. So what David is rejecting is not necessarily people, although we do reject their beliefs. He's rejecting the worship of false gods. It's, it's another declaration of his loyalty to God alone. And look at what people who are loyal to false gods get, multiplied sorrows. We're not even to the blessings yet in the end of the joy that we're going to get to at the very end. Those who make these statements of undivided loyalty to God alone, they receive this joy. Worship and devotion is in view here. Now, look at verse 5. This is, this is a great verse too. And this is just a further expression. He's still, basically the passage splits up, I think, right in half. He makes this declaration of loyalty, and then he states all the blessings that are come to him because of that. Um, it's another declaration of a follower of God and his fixation on God. Verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Now, I struggle with that. I, I struggle with what exactly that meant. I thought I could imply, uh, and this is why I say that, you know, the Holy Spirit speaks to us, and then we check and see if what we're thinking is right. And uh, I, so I read this. What, what this is really meaning is, like, let's imagine that we're all going out on a church picnic to, uh, used to be Bonanza. Everybody remember the old Bonanza? You could get, like, this, you could choose anything. Like, you could have waffles and shrimp. You know, meals you would never put together on your own, but all of a sudden you're having waffle, shrimp, salad, and a hamburger, and, you know, but you're, you're carrying these plates, and it's a smorgasbord, right? You can choose what you want. It was wonderful to go there as a kid because you could eat what you want. You could make the choice. That's what David is saying here. There's a choice. In other words, if there were a thousand portions on the table, a thousand different drinks, David says, the Lord is what I choose. The Lord is my chosen portion. He is the finest steak. He is the best drink. I choose the Lord above everything else. Isn't that so good? Man, and... and the idea that we as Christians are presented a table full of options and we so often choose the other thing for some reason. I choose the NFL. Right? I choose porn. Right? Or whatever it might be. I choose self-pleasure. And we've got the Lord to choose. And when we follow those other gods, what happens? 
When we choose porn, when we choose the other things above God, what happens? Sorrows multiply. Just look around and think about your own life when you've forsaken that commitment from time to time. And then say with David, David was a real guy with real struggles, just like the one I just mentioned, and made bad choices, but his ultimate declaration from God is that he was a man after God's own heart, and here's why. That from all the choices, even though I may mess up from time to time, my heart says, I choose God as my portion. He is the best. I want him. Because he holds my lot. Whatever happens to me, this God, this refuge, this Adonai, he is in control. The boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Got the survey lines. I want to know what my boundary is. I want to... The lines for us have fenced us into God. We have a beautiful inheritance. You know what our inheritance is? It is not heaven. It is not gold. It is not crowns. It is not reunion with dead relatives. It is God himself who is our inheritance. He has given us himself. That is the beautiful inheritance. And that's why we can say the boundary lines for me are very pleasant because God has fenced me into himself. How good is that? Keeps going. I bless the Lord. He gives me counsel. In the night, my heart also instructs me. God, in his self-existent state, has driven me, Andy, as part of my lot, to submit to him as, his, as my Lord and declare my loyalty to him. And as a result, he gives me the greatest and best inheritance he could give. He gives me himself. He gives me himself as my refuge, as my Adonai, my Lord, my highest treasure. I have no good apart from you. It's him alone that I want. He is my chosen portion and cup. He is also my counselor, my advisor. He gives me wisdom. So after David discusses all that God is, setting God before him, verse 7, I have God always before me. Because he isn't at my right hand, now blessings are going to start coming. I will not be shaken. Verse number one, he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. We have no idea what that fear is, right? I said at the beginning, we don't know what specific aspect of David's life he's talking about. But I, we have a little glimpse into what the fear is in verse number 10. What is the fear? Death, death. Whatever, whatever the specific is, we don't know. But he makes clear the ultimate fear that he has, that he wants to be preserved from, is death. But in verse number 8, even before he makes the statement about his fear of death, he, he says, I will not be shaken. Now what happened in between, preserve me, O God, to I will not be shaken. What happened in between there? If you're listening to the sermon, I hope you know. He's reviewing all that God is and declaring his loyalty to that good God. And now all of a sudden, he has what he has asked for. The unmovable, unshakable confidence that God will take care of him. He's at my right hand. 
He declared the value that God was to him. God, you are my refuge. You are my good and only God, my only good. Your people are my delight. I will not worship others. I choose you alone. You give me yourself. You counsel me. You protect me. And all of this gives us gladness, joy, security. I love this last part. I mean, this is just super. Therefore, all he said, therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Look at what he gets. Gladness, joy, security. I mean, it's like we're running out of ways to try to, I think we're, we're butting our heads up against the wall because it is so difficult and such a struggle for people to trust the gospel. And I know many of you, so many of you have been faithful in sharing and as a church we've done things. It's like, God, where is, where is the fruit, God? And I imagine, I mean, if, if you walked up to people and said, hey, would you like gladness? Would you like joy? Would you like security? I mean, yeah. But they think money provides it. They, they do. They think relations provide it. It is not those things. It is God who gives gladness, joy, and security. Isn't, isn't even thinking about what we've thought about so far today regarding God, doesn't it just make, I mean, again, I'm probably failing in expressing it, but just it just makes my heart bubble up with a thrill that this is who God is, and he has chosen me, and he loves me, and this gives me gladness and joy, and he's going to give me unshakable confidence. And even though my loyalty isn't as, I mean, this is, this is the perfect loyalty, right? I will not do these things, and I choose God, even though I fail at that. He still gives me that joy and gladness. And the greatest fear, as I mentioned earlier, is death. David's confidence extends beyond this life. He trusts God even further. My flesh, right? My flesh dwells secure. The fear of being placed into the ground. I mean, that's the overwhelming fear of our, of our land is death. Everyone fears that. Even though Christ, according to Hebrews chapter 2, has taken the death, fear of death away, Here's David saying, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let me see corruption. Death actually doesn't even keep us from the joy. It actually ushers us into the fullness of it. It takes us into the presence of God where there are pleasures forevermore. Think about the pleasures in verse number 11. The constancy of them because they are in his presence the quantity of them, there is fullness of joy and the perpetuity, per, perpetuity of them, the forever more pleasures. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, Psalm 16.10, I read it in Sunday school this morning from Acts chapter 13 when Paul uses it to express the resurrection of Christ. Peter uses it in Acts 2. Peter, when he's speaking on the day of Pentecost, that's what, so let's, let's talk a little bit about here at the end about the prophetic and messianic implications that David is making here. 
we know that First Peter tells us that sometimes the prophets wrote and they didn't even know what they were writing, right? Uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they may have written things, as David wrote this out of his own experience. Some people want to say, well, this is just a totally prophetic psalm. Well, David's writing about something. David, David's saying this about himself, too. But there are prophetic implications here, as Peter and Paul both point out, regarding Psalm 16, verse 10. But David, I don't think, knew this. I, I, don't, think, I don't know that David knew. Maybe, maybe he was thinking this way, but I don't think he could know for sure exactly what it was he was writing. But of course, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches about the day of Pentecost, and, and the people say, you guys are all drunk. Uh, it's only 9 a.m., guys, Peter says. And then he quotes some passages, and he says, David, he quotes Psalm 16.10, and he says, now David's grave is still with us. And if we dug up that tomb, we could find David's bones. His flesh did decay. So David, Peter says, wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the risen Christ who is alive. And I think that's certainly true. And as we consider 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13, when David is giving, given the promise by God, the covenant promise by God, even though he knew he would die, there would always be a, uh, a descendant of his on the throne of Israel. So he's trying to grasp all these promises. I like what it says about Abraham. It says he, in Romans 4, I think it says he did not stagger at the promise of God. And you think he'd be staggering at that, like, God, I can't figure that out. What does that mean? But he may have been alluding that to he, here in Psalm 16.10, understanding that there would be a descendant to come after him. But the main thought that I grasp out of this is this. So here, here's this promise of joy that David's banking on, made known to me the path of life. And right here in the middle of it, as I said at the beginning of our Promises series, all of the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, without the hint of this resurrection here, in Psalm 16.10, all that joy evaporates and disintegrates. All that joy just goes away because Christ is dead. But because of his powerful resurrection, the promises are fulfilled that David is hoping on and banking on here in this passage. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Friends, how are you getting into the presence of God without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? You're not. It is the resurrection of Christ that fulfills this promise of joy and that David can confidently say, I cannot be shaken, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, and you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand pleasures in perpetuity forevermore will always be there. So if Christ is our refuge, our treasure, our Lord, our counselor, our only good, our chosen cup, then God promises to bring us not only through this life, but through death. That on the other side of the grave, we, like, we, we weep for those believers who have died. In, the pre in, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I, I mean, I, I'll, step, I'll step aside here because sometimes people have asked this of me, you know, uh, and, and I know 
some of you have recently lost people, and we've lost folks in our own life, but I've been asked over and over, do you think, do you think Grandma can see what we're doing? You know, do you think they... they I, I would venture to say that anybody who is in the presence of God is not interested in what's going on down here. God is the focus. God, and that, that's, that's a, a human thought. We want that to be the case. But make no mistake, in the presence of God, the focus and glory is himself. And will be when we get there. Will be when we get there. The joy is God. He gives that promised joy. And all of this everlasting pleasure can come through Jesus, the once dead but now risen, living King of kings. Let's bow our heads to pray. Father, I hope, I, I don't know, I hope that the theme of this message has come through loudly and clearly to these friends. And I love this church. I love these people. I want only to encourage and uplift. And I pray that your word has done that. God, how can we walk away from this beautiful passage and not have the same desire that David did to declare our loyalty and dependence upon you as our refuge and counselor and treasure and God and master and savior and ruler? And these wonderful blessings that come from being rightly related to you and the promise of joy in this life, joy that sustains us through painful trials, joy that even takes us, yes, to the grave and beyond and promises that in the afterlife there are fullness of joy that is awaiting us, joy that is derived from you. Thank you, God, for providing this joy. And bolster our own hearts today, those who may be feeling sad and discouraged. God, this world is heavy, difficult. But may the Spirit produce that joy in us, that deep-seated emotion of contentment and thrilling explosion of just happiness that we are rightly related to you. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who provides that for us. Thank you for the pleasures awaiting us awaiting us. Thank you for the security and the gladness and the joy that you provide. May our loyalty be unwavering. May we say with David, we will not go after false gods. We will not choose another God. But when all of the options are presented to us, we choose you. You are the greatest and best. And in times of temptation, help us not to waver, to love you supremely. Thank you, God. For all you've taught us in Jesus' name, amen.